Good morning again. Great to be with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series on practicing simplicity, and in the verses we will read this morning, uh, Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy who's, who he's been pouring into, uh, and he is urging Timothy to take a heart posture of simplicity and generosity over gluttony and greed. Uh, some leaders in the kingdom see their godliness or position as a means of financial gain, but, Paul says, you are to take a different approach. Uh, we pick up in verse 6. He says, they are eager for financial gain, but, Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That's enough, Paul says. In the alternative, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize uh, the incredible choice that has been laid before us uh, between simplicity and contentment on the one hand, uh, springing up into satisfaction and joy, uh, and, and then on the other hand, there's this, this gnawing sense, this, this desire for more, uh, which we know to be endless, even though we don't always sense that in the moment. Uh, Jesus, would you help us to see sort of in our, in our mind's eye, uh, in, our, in our hearts, where those choices lie, where that fork in the road is, and help us to see way down the road to where each of those will eventually lead. Sometimes as we stand at the fork, we're not quite sure, but you say one ends, uh, enjoy satisfaction and ultimately eternal life, and the other is the equivalent of piercing ourselves with many griefs. Uh, would, would, you, would you show us, Lord? Would, would we actually sense where that intersection is in our life uh, so that we can make a clear choice uh, for life over death? Uh, come and wake us up to that now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a confession to make. I have always struggled with generosity. For most of my Christian life, I have tithed, which means that I've given 10% of my income for the purposes of the kingdom of God, but that doesn't mean I was happy about it. And that's actually a problem. I would do it as a discipline, uh, often in sort of this uh, dry, mechanical, almost resentful manner. It would get done, but it was often painful. 
Uh, each and every one of us has our own growth edges in the kingdom. And for years and years, this was mine. But here's what the New Testament actually says about giving and generosity. It says, uh, each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, one who is generous and full of joy at the same time. And curiously, uh, the New Testament doesn't affirm the practice of tithing uh, under the New Covenant. I find it helpful, personally. Uh, for years, it sort of kept me or kept our family on track. It kept us uh, consistent in our giving. And through that practice, uh, God even began to highlight uh, some of the deeper heart work that He wanted to do in my life. But tithing isn't the goal. Richard Foster explains. He says, uh, Why does the New Testament fail to affirm tithing? Now that you've read through the New Testament witness to simplicity, the answer is probably obvious to you. The tithe is simply not a sufficiently radical concept to embody the carefree, unconcerned for possessions that marks life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord of all our goods, not just 10%, and it is quite possible to obey the law of tithing without ever dealing with our mammon lust or our love of money. Next slide. We can feel that our monthly check to the church meets the new law of Jesus and never once root out reigning covetousness and greed. The tithe, as such, fails to dethrone the rival God of materialism. It can never bring the freedom and liberty which are to characterize economic fellowship among the children of the kingdom. Perhaps the tithe can be a beginning way to acknowledge God as the owner of all things, but it is only a beginning and not an ending. The tithe, he says, even regular giving cannot dethrone the rival God of materialism. It doesn't automatically change our hearts. Uh, the Pharisees were proof of that. Uh, they were uh, devout religious leaders. They tithed religiously with military precision. And they were jerks. They still loved their money. They still executed Jesus because He was a threat to their idolatry and power. And I had a similar experience with giving, not with plotting against Jesus. Um, I, I don't regret my years of simply tithing. God's kingdom was, in fact, advanced through that practice. But what really needed to happen in my life is that the rival God of materialism needed to be dethroned. Uh, my unending desire for more and more of the material world uh, had to be put to death. What I really needed was the inner freedom that biblical simplicity brings. And as the deeper heart work happened through that process, without even realizing it, I began shifting from one to the other. Subtly, almost overnight, I found myself becoming a joyful and generous giver. 
Because now I know in my heart of hearts that I have enough. And I know that God sees me and he loves me and he promises to provide the things that I need as I seek first the kingdom of God. And I don't have to worry and and I don't have to cling to things and I don't have to stockpile. I don't have to do any, I'm freed up from all of those things. My new goal is literally to live with less. And in the process, I've discovered that I'm taken care of. And, and, and through that process, I, I now find so much joy in giving things away. There's nothing quite like the rush now of, of giving away material possessions, of giving away money that, that I know uh, will no longer determine my survival. If you, as your relationship with the material world shifts, it, it then changes our relationship to generosity. It, it brings us into a place of radical freedom, of radical trust in the Father. And that's what we're after. It, it's this inner freedom. It's the death of materialism. It's a carefree, unconcerned for possessions. As we come into that place, as we come into a simpler life with Jesus, generosity just begins to take root and blossom. It finds fertile soil to grow in. We begin to bear amazing fruit for God in our lives, even though that's not what we were after in the beginning. In fact, one of the words for simplicity that was common in centuries past was frugality, uh, which sort of has a negative connotation today. Uh, for us, it sort of sounds stingy, uh, but the Latin root for frugality is the word frux, uh, which literally means fruitfulness and joyfulness. So to say, I'm committing to biblical simplicity it would have been saying, I'm, I'm committing to frugality in the historic sense. I'm committing to a life of fruitfulness and joyfulness. The two were one and the same. Here's my second confession. I hate talking about money. We almost never talk about money. Uh, here at the church. Half of you probably don't even know how to give to the church because we're so bad at talking about it. Uh, but what we're after in this uh, isn't money. It's not a bigger budget. Uh, it's not another surplus. It's freedom in the kingdom of God. It, it, it's, it's a glorious revolution against the materialism of our day. It's a carefree, unconcerned for possessions. A freedom from financial idolatry and the anxiety that it breeds. I hate talking about money, but I love talking about freedom. I love talking about the inbreaking kingdom of God. I love cultivating a carefree, unconcerned for possessions. And at the end of the day, Jesus was right. It really is better to give than to receive. He really does bring us into the best 
way to live, something that he calls life that is truly life. In fact, Jesus says very openly, it's better to give than to receive. And that's true in terms of eternal reward. Everything that you give sacrifice for others in the name of Jesus for the sake of the kingdom, that comes with eternal reward. But it's also true in the here and now. I mentioned last week that family well-being in America caps off somewhere between $65,000 and $75,000 a year, uh, meaning that as a family, money can't really increase your well-being beyond that. But there is one exception in all of the studies that they did. Money can continue to increase your well-being after that amount if you give it away. Multiple studies on money and satisfaction found that those uh, who spent money on others and gave money away were actually better off and more satisfied in life than those who spent all their money on themselves. Which again sounds counterintuitive and it flies in the face of materialism. Uh, Our culture says, make all you can and spend it on yourself. Uh, John Wesley, the great revivalist and theologian, once said, uh, make all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. And experience shows this is actually, objectively, the better way to live. That, That it really is better to give than to receive. If all you care about is your own quality of life, then by all measurable metrics of human experience and the human heart and the countless studies that have been conducted, uh, the best thing you could do is give. Ironically, even if all you care about is yourself, which, please don't, But if that's all you cared about, then the best thing you could do would be to practice generosity. But this is a difficult freedom for many of us to lay hold of for so many reasons. First off, we've been sort of trained through materialism to cultivate a grasping life. Uh, where we are always reaching for more. Uh, We want more money and more square footage and more likes and more stuff. And and it trains our hearts to be sort of uh, grasping and needy. That just becomes our heart posture because that's what we do in every arena or realm of our lives. In addition, uh, because we always want more and want bigger, many of us live lives without margin Uh, meaning that we start by buying uh, the biggest and best house or apartment that we can possibly afford. And and we sort of, we reach, we grasp to our limit, almost beyond our limit. And then we end up filling all of those spaces with a bunch of of stuff that we don't really need. So, So all of our time, energy, attention, money, it goes to those things. And that even after we do that, we still want more and more 
and more. And, and we get into this um, sort of sick cycle of relating to material possessions. And before you know it, uh, we've hit our limit. We're, we're, we're tapped out. We're, we feel overwhelmed financially and emotionally. And, and then comes the call to give. And then, when you're at that point, comes the call to generosity, uh, the call to share with others. Can we possibly do that in a joyful and generous way? Well, no. All of the other decisions we've already made about how to structure our lives make that impossible. I, I can't afford to be generous. And, and, and it doesn't bring me joy because I don't have margin. Every single dollar in my paycheck is already pre-assigned to another category and then some. Which means now I've got consumer debt that, that I'm dealing with on the side as I continue to pay for uh, extra storage units that are full of my excess stuff. But I'll give again someday when I can afford it. And, and, and hopefully it will be generous, but probably not. And, and, and hopefully I'll find joy in it, but again, probably not. Because you don't have any margin. There's no breathing room. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier to awkwardly squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. He's saying you, you can't fit through with all of that extra stuff. It's, it's just awkward. But here's the bottom line. If we buy the lie that money brings happiness, well then it becomes really hard to give because I'm literally giving away my happiness. If we buy the lie that money is my security, then it's really hard to give. In fact, giving causes anxiety because I'm giving away my security. If we buy the lie that more is better, then we can become almost bitter in our giving. How can I possibly be joyful and generous when we're giving away the source of our happiness and security and identity and satisfaction? We can't. And there are people who spend their entire lives stuck in that little trap right there. They never break out. They never find freedom. What did Paul say? He said, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of evil is... A, sorry. That would be even worse, I think, than the love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we can see this trap at work in our own culture. Th these traps have been set for us. And so we have to choose. In fact, uh, Paul in this passage puts the two alternatives side by side. He says we, we can be free of the love of money. We can operate in contentment. 
We can allow God to provide our food and clothing and we can rejoice in the fact that he's provided and we can be content because that's truly all we need. That's one way of life. That's biblical simplicity. Or, very next verse, he contrasts that with the alternative. Or, we can fall into this trap. This grasping type of life that always wants more, that is never satisfied, that believes that money and stuff is our life, is our security, is our well-being. And and we fall into this trap in which we want more and more. And, And we believe that life is found in an abundance of possessions. And the result of all that means that I'm on the hook I am, I am trapped. I'm held captive. There's a sense in which Satan just puts a, a little leash around my neck and gets to lead me around. Oh, you want more and more? Come follow me. I'll show you where you can get that. There's a cost to it, but I'll show you. Oh, you had more and you're not satisfied. You still want more. Come follow me deeper. Your life gets hijacked. You begin to mislive. Paul says you're at risk of wandering from the faith and piercing yourself with many griefs. He continues. He says, But you, Timothy, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith against materialism, against greed. And take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In other words, wake up. Don't mislive. Don't be misled. Don't don't waste your life in a trap. It says, take hold of life that is truly life. Grab hold of it. Cling to it violently if you have to. What would you give up to, to take hold of that type of eternal life right here and right now? What's standing in your way? Okay, Jesus says, put that thing on the altar. Drop your nets and come follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, read in Scripture and we experience in life that, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's what we're after this morning. We, we, we want to be free, Jesus, in the fullest sense of the word. And, and the culture's version of freedom is so, so bitterly different than the true and biblical sense of freedom on this topic. And we have to decide. We have to decide if we're going to trust you or, or fall into traps. Uh, and, and many of us, Lord, even as, we, even as we bring our hearts before you, 
we sense that to one degree or another, we are trapped. Uh, We can sense to varying degrees the sin that so easily entangles, uh, like, like ivy that has grown up and just tries to choke out the life that is there. And, and yet, we can open Scripture and, and when you read your own job description, Jesus, it says that you came to set the captive free. And so even as we, we sense uh, varying degrees of slavery in our own hearts, God, we, we can sense maybe, oh, that's real. I pray that we would be even more cognizant, even more aware of you this morning. And the fact that that you are real, that the freedom that you bring is real, that there's nothing that binds, that there's nothing that holds us back, that you cannot cannot loose. There's there's no cords you cannot cut. There's no junk and and ivy that you, you can't rip out of the garden that is our heart. This is what you do, Jesus. This is why you came. And and so I pray, plain and simple, Lord, just for freedom in this place. Would you come now? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak? Would you touch? Would you heal? Would you transform? Would you set us free? As Paul says, uh, we, we, we want to wake up. We want to grab hold of eternal life. God, we we don't want to be asleep in this life only to be awake and fully alive in the next. You you say we could start now. We can can grab hold of the eternal type of life right now. It it begins now. It begins today. So Jesus, as we look at our own hearts, um, sometimes it's just a labyrinth. It's a maze. It's a mess of, of conflicting ideas. But would you come clothed in unapproachable light, the the King who has sacrificed Himself for us, the one who holds the keys to death in Hades, the one who has dominion over anything that would bind, over any stronghold, over any false idea or empty and hollow philosophy. Would you come now, Jesus? Would you set us free?